Welcome to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm your host, Zach Griffiths, Senior Investment Grade Strategist. And joining me today is Josh Esterov, our Senior Insurance Analyst. We're going to go through his two-part series looking at insurance companies' investment portfolios and parsing through what the recent trends and indications from these companies mean for the credit market in 2023. Josh, thanks for joining us. Hey, appreciate you having me back. Well, it's great to have you back. I think this is a, a great topic and will be interesting for many of our clients to parse through. And so just to tee us up, kind of take us through the analysis. I know this is something that you've done before, looking at both life insurance portfolios and property and casualty insurance portfolios. What kind of numbers are we talking here in terms of assets under management? Sure. Yeah. It's an interesting exercise for me because it kind of actually pulls me out of just this insurance silo. Because when you're talking about a $5.2 trillion investment portfolio on the life insurance side, and then you layer on that another $2.2 trillion investment portfolio on the property and casualty insurance side, it makes me quite interesting to a lot of folks who kind of want to know how that big boat might be moving. Because I think, as you know, in your seat as a strategist, it doesn't take a massive reallocation when you're talking seven plus trillion dollars to, to potentially have impacts on the broader market. So it's an interesting analysis that we're able to do every year. Yeah, that's great. Certainly in percent terms, it, it really doesn't take much to move markets when you're coming off a base of around seven trillion. And so going through the analysis, one of the things that stuck out to me and I think will be helpful in kind of framing up what these portfolios typically hold, what kind of yields they generate. I saw that the net yield on invested assets, this is for the insurance portfolio side, was just a touch below 4% in 2022, which is actually the lowest it's been in quite some time. And when I think about 2022, I think about yields rising very quickly, having a much more attractive carry profile for investment grade and high yield credit, perhaps at the end of the year, maybe that's more of an end of the year into 2023 story. So maybe frame up the returns that we saw last year on a historic basis and what you think it means for returns on these portfolios going forward. Sure. So uh, that number that you cited, it's based on uh, regulatory reporting, also known as, as statutory filings. And I'll, I'll probably use those terms interchangeably as we talk here, but the, the, the filings are a little bit different from gap reporting to, to say the least really, but big, big picture, I think it has to do with two factors. So first alternative investment returns were down sharply in 22, certainly relative to 2021. And for regulatory reporting, it's largely based on actual income proceeds. So the amount of cash that could be kicked off from those alternative investments, think like private equity or hedge funds or, or, or whatnot. So it's, it's not so much asset valuation declines as it is lower distributions. The second point to consider is life insurers can have really long duration investment portfolios. So even if rates rise sharply 
And if you think about a 10-year average duration portfolio, for example, that means only 10% of investments are maturing in a given year. So it takes time to actually go from maturity to reinvestment to translating to book yield. And then, you know, that said, new money rates are sharply higher. So investment returns will be going up and we're already seeing it really. I'm going to cherry pick an example here, but I'll take Corebridge, the AIG spinoff. You know, their management team is referencing new money yields in the 7% area as of year end 22. Compare that to like new money yields in the three-ish percent area a year before that and the portfolio book yield kind of in between those two numbers. And everyone across the board, life insurer, PNC insurer, they're all kind of reporting substantially higher new money yields right now, but it is going to be a matter of time before that actually flows through. And especially on regulatory filings, nothing's fast in the insurance space. Having said that, PNC insurers, it can be a little faster because they have the, the shorter duration investment portfolio. So if you think about your auto and home policy, you know, maybe that's a six month policy or a one year policy, but point being, it's not a 30 year term life insurance policy. So they're both exposed to the short end of the curve where interest rates are higher. Whereas a life insurer might be looking out at the 10 year tenor, for example, trying to buy a 10 year bond or something like that. And so a greater proportion of a PNC insurer's investment portfolio will come due in a given year. And they're probably investing at a part of the curve that's more favorable for them right now. So like you said, yes, life insurance regulatory reported yields did decline, but in contrast, PNC insurers had the opposite experience where the the regulatory reported yield went from about, you know, 2.6% to north of 3.2%. So a little bit of a difference there between the two sectors. Yeah, that's an important point. And looking at your table here, it looks like that's the highest return on invested assets on the PNC side since 2018. So definitely important to keep in mind the duration profile. And so I guess be between those two, when coming back to the life insurance side, you, we've continued to see the bond maturity distribution for these life insurers kind of tick down over the past couple of years. Have they given any indication whether or not they would try to reallocate more to the front end to capitalize on these higher short-term yields, or is it always just going to come down to an asset liability management decision, really just not leaving them that latitude, at least from a duration standpoint? Well, if you talk to any management team, they'll never say they're not adhering to asset liability management practices because that's about the fastest way they're going to have to check their own executives and insurance policies on lawsuits. So they'll never say that. And, and typically, actually, based on our reviews, the, the data does bear it out that leading insurers, at, at the least, they are typically fairly rigorously adhering to those practices. Now, they, they do have some opportunity at the margins, make some level of, of bets on kind of the interest rate environment or how things could progress. They might go more floating rate, which is something we've seen in the recent past. And depending on the nature of those securities, if they're, you know, a perpetual or callable, it may still have a place in the ultimate kind of capital structure. But what we don't typically see is like a wholesale swing in duration approach, unless something fundamentally changes with a business, they exited a business or acquired a business, something like that. There's also fairly strict regulatory provisions that kind of try to prevent those types of things from happening. Because that's about the fastest way an insurer can get into trouble is you start making interest rate bets and they go the opposite direction. And then too many agencies have to get involved. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. And I don't think anyone's looking to get into any regulatory trouble, especially following the issues with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. This First Republic Bank situation continues to unfold, not going too smoothly up to this point, but I want to touch on your point about floating rate and thinking about the asset portfolio as a whole. You mentioned alternatives and kind of how that had a big impact on outsized returns, perhaps in 2021, less of an impact on 2022. I think 
alternatives kind of get lumped in with CLOs, which are a floating rate product as well. Talk to us about how you've seen a reallocation to the kind of alternative side, whether that be private credit, direct lending, CLOs. What's been the landscape or at least maybe the trend over the past year that you noticed in putting together these reports? Sure. So let me start with with alternatives, which I'll define for the moment as predominantly private equity or hedge fund investments. What we didn't actually see, which maybe was a little bit surprising to us, but positive from a credit perspective, is we didn't see massive increases in allocation to those types of investment vehicles if you don't include the valuation gains predominantly over the, like, the end of the uh, 2020 through 2021 timeframe. So we didn't see this rush to not miss out on gains from the ma- from from a majority of insurers, but I, I'd say that broadly speaking, kind of on average, you get anywhere from like a zero to ten percent allocation, with five percent kind of being mostly the anchor point in terms of allocation there, and a little bit of an increase lately just because of the valuation gains. But then, if you want to talk about other areas like CLOs, for example, those are surging in popularity. There's no doubt about that, and there's a couple of reasons there, but. Really what it comes down to is is a little bit of yield opportunity and a little bit of, let's call it regulatory capital arbitrage opportunity. So you can invest in, if you're an insurance company, you can invest in a CLO, for example, let's say, you know, it's predominantly the underlying is below investment grade, for example, you may have to hold a capital charge north of uh, 6% against that investment. But once you, you know, once you throw the, all those securities into a CLO, maybe it's higher rated. And then that translates to a lower regulatory capital charge for what is functionally an underlying high yield security. And so there's a lot of debate right now in the regulatory community as to how this should be addressed because to your point, yeah, exposure to CLOs based on regulatory filings, it reached almost 180 billion at year end 22, which is 15% higher than it was in 21. And that was on the back of another 20% gain in the prior year. So Insurers are kind of caught on to this trick. Everybody's kind of doing it. And the, one of the problems I would say in the insurance industries, especially on the life insurance side, you really can't fall behind in terms of investment portfolio returns because eventually what that means, what that's going to translate to is over time, you're going to either have to raise prices on your products, which is obviously going to reduce your competitiveness, or you're going to have to reduce the benefit richness of your product again also reducing your competitiveness. And so if you start falling behind on the investment portfolio front, your margins are lower, you could actually find yourself in a situation where you're over time losing market share. And that forces a number of insurers to engage in asset classes and investment strategies that perhaps at one point they didn't do. And that leads to a little bit of hurting behavior. And we're seeing some of that across like private credit, private label securities and and that kind of stuff. Is that something that you are concerned about at this time or maybe keeping an eye on and monitoring, I suppose. I, I imagine that the, you know, the frequency with which you, you get a lot of details on these are, are quarterly at most, I would imagine. But as far as the financial health of the insurance industry as a whole, is that a, a big concern or just something that's kind of at the margin you're keeping an eye on as you sort of see these trends emerge? Yeah, it's a a good question. So if we were to close the books today, this strategy worked out swimmingly well. Everyone got higher yield. There was no problem with where we are, where we were at in the credit cycle. So everything worked out great. And, you know, the data bears it out. Insurers that have engaged in these strategies, unsurprisingly, have outperformed. But we can't just close the books today, obviously. So gauging the level of concern is something we kind of do on a name by name basis. And it's it's difficult to say as a sector. So I would say if you're going to force me 
to say something. What I would say is for the leading insurers, I agree that they are very well diversified across asset classes, across sub-asset classes as well. And the underlying ratings tend to be fairly strong within the fixed income portfolios. But that said, this is totally an untested environment. So we tend to do it sort of on a name-by-name -name basis. And I'm going to pick on like a couple of insurers right now, for example, but pockets of risk that we see is like MetLife, where they have an enormous allocation to commercial mortgage lending. But also, in addition, a significant portion of that is associated with office properties, which are clearly in the uh, crosshairs right now, at least from an investor focused area. So I think what it would really take to kind of imperil an insurer would be like a, a combination of events. You have some kind of liquidity event. Maybe that's like a lot of policyholders surrendering. Maybe we get a little bit of a resurgence in, in pandemic claims and you have illiquid or devalued assets that become problematic to monetize. I think that's actually far outside the base case. I'm not predicting any kind of event like that. I think actually like the run in the bank scenario is borderline nonsensical, but you know, it doesn't have to be an impairment situation. It could also be, you know, as an investor, you're worried about downgrade risk for a given insurer. And that's certainly not out of the question. So what we do is we kind of evaluate name by name because every insurer's kind of got a different strategy and, and it, it's difficult to, to paint everything in broad strokes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you hit on something that I want to cover. It seems to be top of mind for many investors. And I'd say for financial market participants broadly, is this concern around commercial real estate? Is it the next shoe to drop? You point out office is maybe the most concerning and that's really nothing new. I think post pandemic, everyone's concerned about a big drop in occupancy rates. You identify MetLife as having perhaps the largest portion of its portfolio allocated to CRE and within that a large allocation to office. And I know it, we can't paint this with broad brush strokes, but is CRE a huge part of the aggregate portfolio? And is it something that, that you're concerned about? Or again, is this more kind of at the margin, name by name, something that you need to, to monitor depending on what company or what bonds you're looking at investing in? Yeah, so that's, that's the billion dollar question. Actually, no, that for the industry, that's the $677 billion <laughs> question. Obviously an area investors and myself personally are focused on, and there's really a wide range of exposures. So for some insurers, commercial mortgage lending could be upwards of, let's say, actually like 20% of the investment portfolio. So it's not nothing. On the other hand, maybe it's less than 5%, depending on which insurer you're looking at. There's some insurers, like I picked on MetLife earlier, I don't pick on like principal financial group a little bit. They've long considered real estate investment, whether that's owned real estate or, or commercial mortgage lending, a core competency. And so... I think it's going to be an idiosyncratic issue again, instead of a systemic one. And at the moment, my base case scenario is this actually may not be as severe of an outcome as some folks are worried about, but I'll, maybe I'll share kind of the bull perspective and then the bear perspective. And so the bull perspective is the portfolios are very well diversified by sub-asset class, let's say industrial, retail, office, healthcare. There's a good mix in there. And it is true that, that generally the LTVs are, are well below, let's say, the 65% area. It's not uncommon for insurers to be closer to the 50% area on average for their commercial real estate exposure. And so that gives them a cushion before they have to absorb losses. And then second, they're buy and hold investors, right? So even if the property has to go through, let's say, like a foreclosure process and the insurer physically you know, takes the keys, they probably have the balance sheet capacity to kind of wait out this economic cycle and, and maybe pursue a sale of that property at some point in the future. The bear case is probably tangentially related there that there's negative regulatory capital implications from taking ownership of a property. There are higher capital charges for directly owned real estate, especially if it's been foreclosed upon. And then if you have you know, a massive devaluation that kind of breaches what some insurers consider their stress scenario for some of these properties, 
well, maybe those portfolios aren't quite as high quality as they originally predicted. Right now, you and I can argue whether the US is in a recession or not, but you can't argue that the commercial real estate transaction market, that's clearly in a recession right now. So now you're talking about insurers sitting on very liquid securities, whether or not they actually need to monetize those securities is going to be a, a, an issue for each individual insurer. But negative uh, regulatory capital implications could contribute to negative investor sentiment. And let's say they have to reduce their share buybacks. It could also lead to negative rating agency sentiment if you have reduced regulatory capital cushions. So it's not like I expect tomorrow company X, Y, or Z is going to just say, that's it, we're, we're done for. But over time, depending on how long the situation persists and how much an insur given insurer needs, you know, X amount of dollars, maybe it becomes a problem. So that's kind of how we're, where our heads are at right now. So it sounds like it's certainly not an immediate term problem, but it's going to come down to what is the performance of the asset class? What is the mix of the underlying asset? And, you know, it could be one of those situations where it's not a problem, but if the current underlying backdrop persists, it's not a problem in, until it is. And that's going to come down to how long is the U.S. economy slowing or in recession? And how exactly does that flow through to the commercial real estate market? Does that seem like a, a fair representation yeah. of sort of how you're thinking about it from an outlook perspective? I think so. But maybe I'll just add to it, too, and say that once you start layering in problems, it, it's rare for one thing to bury an insurer. So even if you're a PNC insurer, if you're a leading name, you're probably pretty well diversified either by geography or product lines, a hurricane's probably not going to wipe you out. But if you have a hurricane, now you're sitting on a bunch of illiquid assets. Everybody starts crashing their cars or something like that with inflation. So you start layering issue on issue on issue, and it could become a significant problem. But in isolation, I suspect insurers will manage through it. Well, that's encouraging. And when thinking about, you know, Alternatives, we've, we've covered a lot. Is there anything on the alternatives front that we haven't covered in terms of trends in, in reallocating to some of these sub-indices that, that go into there? I, I guess you said alternatives for the purpose of this discussion is PE and hedge funds, but is there anything else kind of outside that core fixed income investment or asset that these portfolios have that you want to comment on here? Yeah, I mean, I think other watch list areas for us are, are like middle market lending. That said, I don't think I immediately see any red flags for the insurers that do typically have over allocation or let's say above average allocation in middle market. It tends to be in lieu of generic corporate high yield investments. So it's kind of just picking and choosing where they want to take risk. We've had a lot of conversations with folks recently about just in general, broad allocation to more private label securities. And in, in fact, private bonds, if you're going to include all of them, like even 144As, and maybe those aren't truly illiquid or, or, or private, but if you were to include that, it's almost a 50-50 split now in terms of allocation to public or private credit. And private just continues to substantially outpace growth of public security. So we're perhaps looking at another year or two before the majority of the investment portfolio becomes private as opposed to public. We've seen anywhere from like 7 to 10% growth in allocation of private credit over the last few years. And, and that compares to kind of a range of plus 4% to minus 3% for public credit. And there are some insurers that are like we were kind of talking about earlier, the herding behavior a little bit. There are some insurers that are playing catch up as much as half or more of new money is going into these private securities as they try to kind of get their portfolios to whatever steady state they want it to be. So those are kind of area pockets of, of risk that we're keeping an eye on. 
But I think 90% of the investor kind of inquiry I get at this point is probably related to real estate CLOs. Those are the hot button topics for sure. And so kind of bringing it back to our core at credit sites, corporate bonds, that's a huge part of these portfolios. And I'm looking through again, picking on the life insurers right now. The changes in investment portfolio allocation from year end 2021 to year end 2022, you actually call out a fair bit of downdraft in allocation to corporate debt again to some of these other asset classes that we've discussed up to this point. Given the big increase in yield across investment grade, which I'd imagine is predominantly where the life insurers hang out and, and even high yield, how, how does the change in the rate environment affect your view of these investment portfolios allocation to credit going forward as we kind of think about where spreads go this year and even into to 2024 from a technical perspective? So uh, actually, I would say that that insurers are kind of in love with what's going on with the interest rate environment. I mean, sure, they can kind of nitpick and, and a life insurer might be able to say like, hey, I wish the curve was upwardly sloping and there was more of a tens, thirties curve, um, you know, more of an upward slope there. But largely speaking, um, higher interest rates are, are hugely supportive for their, let's say, medium to long term prospects. So immediately you're going to get the benefit of higher investment slash reinvestment yields. In addition to that, it also reduces the likelihood of unfavorable reserve development, which is a major positive if you're you know, trying to evaluate the, the credit worthiness of a given company. And so they still very much love corporate debt. I mean, it remains for basically every insurer we sample with, you know, maybe there's an outlier here or there, but it remains basically the largest allocation they have. And certainly, you know, allocation to, to other asset classes, whether that's like EBS or mortgage loans, that might be going up. But in the context of some of the data you're looking at, I suspect that it's based on gap data and that reflects fair value. And so with higher interest rates, obviously the value of those securities is going down. So it looks like the allocation is shifting. But again, we're talking really long duration portfolios. It takes a long time to really move these boats in any significant way. And so even if an insurer wanted to say, let, let's say, I want to cut my corporate debt exposure by half, you know, that could be a 10 plus year process for them to actually accomplish that goal. In the meantime, like you said, it still remains the primary component of the investment portfolio. So everything else we're kind of talking about is how things are changing. They can't move, you know, all that rapidly. And so if you find an insurer that has 30% allocation of corporate debt, that's on the low end. So very much still a, a, a core and necessary investment and will remain so in, well into the foreseeable future. Very important point on fair value and incorporating how the change in the interest rate environment will affect that. And so as opposed to a reallocation out of credit, it could just be marking to market the change in valuations that we've had over the past year, which is certainly- Yeah, and, and maybe I'll even add to that and say too, that the insurers don't really care too much about the impacts from the, the lower valuation. Now it does have gap balance sheet implications and maybe investors are going to start looking a little bit more closely if there's massive declines, but from a, a regulatory accounting perspective, which is what governs all of their ability to distribute cash up to the holding company and their ability to buy back shares, give dividends, all the stuff they love, those are- if the security is not like imminently in default, it's almost always carried at amortized cost. And so the changes to market value have very limited implications from a cash flow distribution and a regulatory capital perspective. So long as you avoid impairments or negative uh, credit migration, uh, they'll hold through um, and they'll be happy to do so because um, it's not going to impact uh, their ability to uh, give themselves a, a raise. Yeah, another, another very important point. 
And when I'm going through this, these reports are such a wealth of information. I'm looking at the allocation across ratings and you see that the triple B area is really the bread and butter, again, for life insurance portfolios. Are there any interesting trends outside of that core, you know, lower end of the investment grade range, or has that kind of always been in the stalwart and there's really only marginal changes on, on the, you know, outside, either further up in quality or further down when you just kind of look at the change from 2021 to 2022. And if there isn't anything too interesting there, are you expecting any reallocation from a rating perspective going forward based on the yield environment? Yeah, good question. So hopefully you don't mind this little bit of a history lesson I'll, I'll give, but if we go back, let's say a decade, it was really the A or better that had the lion's share of allocation within investment portfolios. But given where the interest rate environment was for so long, plus the just expansion of the universe of triple B credits, insurers suddenly found a way for them to at least try to maintain investment portfolio yield in the midst of a persistently and stubbornly low interest rate environment. If we fast forward a little bit, kind of towards the start of pandemic conditions, what we kind of saw was insurers were increasing allocation to better securities and especially in sectors like technology, consumer staples, just really trying to get as defensive as they could. And that was a period where we saw some of the largest amount of portfolio turnover. Now it was still, you know, single digit percentages of the overall investment portfolio, but that was something new for us. Now insurers have kind of been re-risking the investment portfolios, not necessarily going into high yield, but, but certainly kind of more risk on and tolerance again for triple B, even if it's lower triple B. And the other thing I'd add to that too is, is a couple of years back, we got some changes to the uh, regulatory capital regime, whereby it used to be that if, for example, all triple B investments, whether that's triple B positive, triple B negative, they all had the same capital charge. Now it's kind of aligned with what the rating agencies do. And so a triple B plus will have a different capital charge than a triple B minus. So we did see a little bit more of a barbell and curiously, the capital charge for certain investments, like a double B security, they declined. And so we kind of expected insurers would take advantage of that in the corporate credit space, but they didn't. They took advantage of that in other asset classes that maybe had where the, they were still seeing a more favorable yield versus regulatory capital charge, even if it didn't affect that particular asset class. So allocation of high yield still actually remains really low. It's gone down, let's call it 5%, and that's down from 9% area, let's say a decade ago. And then to your point, allocation of triple B is up like 10 percentage points over a decade to like the 44% area. So I think that still speaks to generally a pretty high quality investment portfolio. Insurers don't do most of their risk taking in high yield corporate bonds. The universe just A isn't really like big enough necessarily if you don't want to take a lot of concentration risk on a given name. Every insurer is going to have a little bit of a different bet. So you typically see them do their risk taking other classes, uh, especially now at this, more so now at this point, whether that's alternative CLOs you know, middle market, real estate, what have you. Awesome. Yeah, that's, that's very helpful context. I, I feel like I could ask you questions forever, but we're getting to the end of time here. Is there anything we didn't cover as far as key points and your takeaways going through this exercise for both reports, or is there any key takeaway that you want to leave our listeners with that we really haven't hit on yet? Well, obviously that the best source of information for how insure investment for all is are evolving is at credit sites. But we welcome, I personally welcome, if anybody wants to kind of chat about it more, has any specific questions, we always welcome that it shows at least somebody remembered who I am. So, you know, find a way to reach out and we can have a chat. 
All right. Well, there it is. That's the invite to reach out to Josh, bug him, dig into these two reports that came out in the middle of April and get the additional detail that he and only he has in that brain of his. So Josh, thank you so much. I found this extremely enlightening. I'm sure all of our listeners will too. And to all of you listening in, thank you. We'll catch you next time. Thank you very much. Credit Sykes Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.